are we going to mention the dirty word over servicing? <laughs> <laughs> Which I know is one of your pet hates. <laughs> it, it really is. My name's Mike Lander, and you're listening to Marketing Negotiations, the good, the bad, and the ugly in partnership with The Drum, where we bring you negotiation insights from CMOs, agency leaders, and acclaimed authors. Jay, thank you ever so much for joining us on the Drum's Marketing Negotiation Podcast. Welcome. Awesome. It's really great to be here. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. So um, for our audience, for our listeners, just a bit about your background, your kind of current role, and something you're passionate about or you're most proud of would be great. Awesome. Well, it, it kind of all wraps up in one. So uh, I'm the founder of Launch. We're a performance marketing agency. Yep. We're the happiest agency, or we're aiming to be <laughs> the happiest agency in the world. I saw that. Yeah. And we've been going for 10 and a half years. And that's what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about making people happy, basically. I, I had to, earlier uh, last year, at the beginning of the year, I'd start the year um, setting out what was it? Why? Why am I doing this? What is my purpose? Because every so often as an agency founder, you really need to work out, you know, what, you, what are you doing it for? Not only what the agency's doing it for. And I realized that kind of empowering people to bring their best selves to work and creating great work because happy people do great work. They do, precisely. What kind of work do you do? So you say it's performance marketing, but what kind of aspects of that? Paid media, conversion optimization, measuring what we're okay. doing. So um, lots of folks on data. Yeah, and and you know driving new customer acquisition, really trying to get those channels working for the clients uh, so that Correct. they can grow or be more efficient. Which as an ex-buyer is music to my ears. Because it's all about, you know, it's not all about the ROI, but there has to be a value proposition there and there has to be a clear return on investment when we're going to spend a lot of money. So, yeah. And that's why measurement is now more important than ever. Exactly right. So, um, let's kind of start off the kind of conversation with a topic around um, what's your kind of starting place for negotiations? How do you approach it mentally and as an organization? So, we're, we're the agency size that we are, there's 24 of us in the business. And that means that there's probably about probably more than 50 negotiations a year. So there's a lot of negotiations happening, different sizes of accounts. And to me, the absolute crux of it is that it's a partnership because both businesses need to be able to succeed. If one business is going to get much more out of it than the other, it's going to be a short-term partnership. It's going to be unequal. It's going to probably start off immediately, not in that trust base. You need to have kind of trust from the start. So I think actually the way that you negotiate is as important as that first pitch. Can you be grown up in it? Can you be adult about it? And can you have an open and transparent conversations about what do we need to get from it? What do you need to get from it? And how can we make sure that that we know what this kind of success looks like in 12 months' time. So partnership, everyone talks about partnership. So every agency I've ever met says they want to partner with their clients. Um, it's quite interesting being a buyer when you hear that about, okay, another partnership. But obviously, you know, I'm not denying you genuinely mean it because you do. Yeah. What does it mean to you? What does partnership mean to you personally and businesses that you work with? 
for it to be fun and to actually feel, well, the, you know, you always look at your task list. You always look at what you want to do most rather than what you need to do most. And okay, we all go through time management training to look at the tasks that matter most to our business. But in those weak points, you you do you just do what is fun and enjoyable. And I don't mean that in a kind of lighthearted. What what we do every day is that you know it's very data driven. It's pretty dry. It's normally the part of of advertising that is left to a department in the corner that no one pays much attention to. So in order to kind of bring that story to life and bring that data to life, having a, an enjoyable relationship where both parties are getting an equal amount from the you know from the from the partnership, and and it's oh and this is also a cliche. Ext- and it's working as an extension of the team. I mean, every agency says that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that you only really know in practice what it's like once you start working with the client. You do. Yeah, and and that's what's challenging. You know, that's why we use kind of drum reviews. That's why we're a recommended agency because that enables then people to, to clients, potential clients, to see what the clients, other clients, say about us. And, you know, what do you, how do they score you? We also give references as well so that, that they can actually contact them, you know, and, and actually hear from another CMO. But partnership, often talked about, rarely delivered on. Absolutely agree. And on that partnership theme, so when, um, and again, as people know, kind of, I'm an ex-buyer, so I come at things with a certain mindset. And when I hear partnership, I'm delighted because it's like, okay, great. Obviously, as you say, we, we're both in it for a, a, a longer-term reward. But that often means risk and reward, so that if if I, as the buyer, don't get the results, you, as my partner, has to feel some of that pain as well. Yeah. How do you negotiate that? How do you get that balance right so that you're not on a, a ridiculous performance target that no one's yeah. got a, a chance of hitting? I think that's challenging because from a business perspective, we want the contract to be a long contract because yeah. that's obviously where... Um, you get the the best rewards as a partnership, but we often put in very low minimum terms, no 12-month minimum term for us, because that is our, our signal to the buyer that actually we're okay to walk away from an agreement if we're not both getting what we need out of it. Okay. So it allows me the flexibility to terminate. So I'm not in exactly. it for a 12, 24, 36-month lock-in. I can use termination for convenience after yeah. a certain period. So that, exactly. yeah, that, that, that's music to my ears as a buyer. <laughs> and that can work both in both ways because there's no point banging your head against a brick wall if you're not getting the results. Often you'll do a pitch, you'll do a forecast, you'll look at what every you know all the data that you have and then when you onboard, you realise that actually the analytics system wasn't speaking to the CRM system or the website isn't uh, the website um, manager isn't willing to make any of the changes that you need them to make so it enables both parties to be able to walk away from it and i think again it's you know never need the business too much because if you need the business too much then you're going to to start to negotiate in favor for for just winning the work rather than it being a meaningful partnership and what happens when, so the kind of brands that you work with, Jay, what kind of, like are, they, are these huge companies, small companies, kind of uh, UK, European, international, what, what are they? So mainly UK and they're unsexy brands. They tend to not <laughs> be 
the you know they're, they're more challenger brands or they tend to not be the household names um and they're turning over hundreds of millions of pounds but they go under the radar um and are perhaps not you know talked about they what's interesting is that is we've had two years of amazing success with awards and actually you know when 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 the judges and the the people on the panel are looking even if it's an unsexy brand if there's a good enough story there then then that is what sells it and there's some amazing british companies out there who are doing brilliant work that perhaps some of the larger agencies if we're an agency of 24 specialists you know we're up against much larger agencies and perhaps those are the brands that are forgotten um and often aren't pitched to and therefore when we come and we say look we we think what you're doing is great let us help you they they're compelled to work with us then so um in those kind of challenger brands um and the kind of where I was where my mind was going with it was often in the smaller brands um you don't meet these kind of procurement people these yes. often demonized you know buyers um Whereas obviously in global multinationals, you always do because yes. there's more risk, they're bigger organizations, there's more spend, et cetera. Do you meet um, kind of professional buyers, trained negotiators when you're negotiating with clients often or not? So it's one of the things that um, I'm kind of frightened of growing to to come against um, procurement because I hate wastage and I hate unnecessary um, red tape um, that stops us from getting things done. I purposefully haven't worked in a corporate world. All of the companies that I've worked for, they might have been turning over 50 million, but there were maybe only 40 or 50 people in the organization. I I don't like um, uh, yeah, wasting our valuable time. We don't have lots of middle, middle people within our organization that act between the client and the delivery team. We just deliver great work. I think what's the shame about that is that it does cap where we're going to be delivering our work for. But I think that there's plenty of meaningful businesses that can make a difference, that perhaps are more purpose-driven, that perhaps are uh, uh, independent um, and not run by PE. And that's the kind of place that we work in. Um, I, I've, I've watched brilliant talks from superb marketing um, procurement professionals. And I do understand that, you know, that it is needed um, but I find the red tape of it excludes specialist agencies like us. And that's a real shame. I mean, I, obviously, having been in on the kind of the buy side for a number of years, and now I work with uh, agencies, um, I think, uh, you know, when I was a buyer, we were always looking for innovative agencies. I was, I operated within a private equity backed environment. Uh, we were looking for innovative agencies that were more fleet of foot that could do the unusual or often the impossible. Um, and But yeah, it came with more governance and stricter contracts and SLAs and KPIs and everything else that comes with it. And and I get why. It, it, it's a balance that you don't want to have to go through six months of contract negotiations before you start the work. Yeah. And it's a um, shame. It, it, is, it is a real shame. Are we For that reason, we, I think, only... In the last ten and a half years, have done one tender. Ah. We just don't. We don't fill. We don't fill in RFPs because. You don't fill in RFPs. No, uh, because okay. it, because it would take a, a whole probably another two people of yeah. non-billable people. Whereas we're just focused on doing great work. We've got non-billable people. We've got marketing. We've got sales. But 
but that I don't see any need um, for that, for the ambitions that we have to deliver great work. And I think that's a shame because that means that we're not on those on those tender lists. But it's not a shame for the companies that we do get to, to exactly work with. Exactly right. So I'm sure people like Blair Renz would be jumping around with joy uh, hearing <laughs> that, you know, you don't do RFPs because he's a big fan of win without pitching, clearly. Yes. Um, so, and again, I get why, because the RFP process, people like me used to write them with the business partner, then yes. go out to agencies, and then we get the responses back and compare, etc. So if that's not the route you're going down, and I get why it makes a lot of sense uh, for certain agencies in certain markets, that's not good or bad, that's just it makes perfect sense, then how do you negotiate the commercial terms of an agreement with a client. Don't give away any secrets of individual clients, yeah. but just themes. What the RFP often does is it lays out the specification very clearly. Yeah. And what that leads to is pretty tight SOWs, states yeah. of work, and pretty tight contracts. And that can be good and bad. Yes. But without that, it's a bit of a void of discovery in the negotiation. And that can backfire in you or the client. So how does that work? Potentially. I think one of the challenges with, with most performance-based, um, as in performance marketing, as in paid media RFPs, is that first of all, you rarely get pure paid media RFPs. They tend to bring in SEO to it. So it's more of a full-service agency approach. It often is written by people who either maybe were doing the work five years ago and they're now in a management position and don't understand how things have moved on. So the um, the the you know what they're expecting you to achieve might not either be achievable or you actually measure different things now. You used to measure clicks and impressions. Now it you know and CPCs and now we're way beyond that. Um, so it stops us from having to challenge that brief. It's quite challenging to challenge an RFP, um, and that's that's kind of our first point of negotiation is challenging the brief. So the client always comes to us with a problem they're trying to solve, whether it um, is a positive problem, they want more sales because they're growing fast and they want more new customers at a better cost per acquisition. So we look at what their challenge is, we look at what their current setup is, and we almost always do some form of audit because that is, and it, and yes, that is done for free. So we are, you know, the, the Blair ends when Blair ends. No, 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 he wouldn't. No, you're doing work at risk and for free, which is not good. But that is enabling us to see what is the size of the opportunity for the clients. Because part of that partnership is us saying, we have seen these opportunities for you. This is what we believe we can deliver. Now let's create an SOW that will speak to that. And this is what we'll do within that scope. This is what we won't do and what we need you to do, or we need another specialist agency to do. Um, but it always is outcome focused. Um, I'd love it to also be value-based rather than time-based, but a majority of brands that we work with really like to know roughly how many days that is. So we're still quite tied to time, um, uh, time and materials, as they say. But um and I'm 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 sometimes frustrated by that. Um, but as long as the partnership is there, then then they're getting something, we're getting something, and then they tell us, um, then they tell all of their network about how great we're doing, and that's where we get a majority of our leads from, rather than tenders. And I think um, Blair kind of summarised it nicely when he talked about activities 
outputs and outcomes. And again, as a buyer, you know, I um, I never liked buying activities. I get why it's done, and I get how it works, obviously. Um, but I I always preferred to buy an output and ideally an outcome. Mm. But again, recognizing that buying an outcome is challenging often for you as an agency because you don't have control over yeah. my sales team or over my e-commerce site or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, but interesting that you're you're quite comfortable with the time materials approach yeah. and being transparent over the rate cards and over the um the the time that people are taking. And and that's one of our values. Transparency is one of our values because ah. because um a, a lot of the companies that we're working with, you know, and they they might be spending four or five million pounds a year on on paid media. Yeah, it's a lot. A lot. And and it will be a significant, you know, significant amount of their budget. It will, you know, probably almost half of of their marketing budget will be will be going into this. And trust is really important and transparency enables you get to get to a position of trust. And us being clear about what we're delivering um, and where our scope is enables us to to then be able to have a transparent conversation about are we going to mention the dirty word? Over servicing, <laughs> <laughs> which I know is one of your pet hates. <laughs> it, it really is, and it's so funny because it took me well, of the ten and a half years I've been running the agency, about nine and a half years. I've talked a lot about over servicing with our team, yeah, because we need to get to a point where we're efficient. That you 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 tend to. And what do you mean by over service? So just so everyone, so the audience is clear, um, in your terms, what is over servicing? So if in the statement of work, we've agreed what time and materials is going to go into the project, we need to keep within that because we're resourcing the team. And part of having a happy team is to make sure they're not overstretched, to make sure that this old kind of view of agency life being fast paced, that's that's not appealing. First of all, we are a, a West Country agency. We're based in Bristol and in Exeter and all around there. And there is more of a work-life balance Kind of, um, you know, bent in 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 this part of the world. There's, you know, people like that that kind of work life balance, and and so us being able to say, as an agency, we are very cautious about how much work we put on your plate. We resource it according to to how many hours, putting twenty percent to learning and development, five percent to kind of water cooler chat. So we need to make sure that we assign you the right amount of time. Now, if a client starts to ask for granular reporting done on a daily basis that is out of what has been agreed, that's when then you get into over-servicing. And agencies that don't handle that properly, that becomes then a point of sometimes emotional difficulty where a team member will feel like they just don't have enough hours in a day to get the outcomes that the clients want because they're spending too much time on comms. And so being able to manage that properly and the team to manage their time properly and manage that relationship properly is important. Internally, we used to call it over-servicing. I then had an agency talk to me about how they were over-servicing us. And it was the most awful experience because I thought, well, that's not my problem. I have an outcome. You've signed up to this agreement. You need to help me reach that outcome. And it's your responsibility as an agency. I don't know how much time you're taking. You're not showing me your timesheets. You need to have a conversation about there's only one amend allowed or there's only... But to then emotionally put that baggage onto me that I'd cause them 
problems in their business. No, that's your agency's business to deliver on time for the outcomes that agreed. And so now we've banned the word over-servicing internally for our agency. It's about making sure that you're efficient and effective in the time that you have to work on the account and then having a meaningful conversation with the client about when that's out of kilter. So how does that work? So uh, interesting around, again, when you're negotiating contracts with any size of client, uh, not all agencies have a QBR process. And, you know, my view of these quarterly business reviews on both sides, buying and selling, is they're they're essential, um, vital to uh, having a, a forum whereby you can talk about issues like actually there's an efficiency issue yeah. on either side. So as the client, they're not responding on time and that's causing problems or there's rework because they've responded two weeks late and therefore the, yeah. the content's out of date. Uh, or no longer um, uh, newsworthy potentially. Yeah. So all of that, do you do you have QBRs? Hundred percent, yes. And and to be honest with you, the first kind of six years of being in business, we weren't very good at that. In fact, we were probably having, you know, we were having too many meetings for meetings' sake. Now, now that we have a much tighter kind of process, as you grow as an agency, you always kind of put those things in at the wrong end. You should have them from the start, but you put them in towards you know, you're, when you're getting bigger, um, it's really important. And we also take an opportunity to keep challenging the clients. You know, if we're a retainer-based business for almost all of our projects, um, or almost all of our clients, I should say, and you, what you don't want is for anyone to feel like there's complacency coming in, because there's always something more that can be done. Exactly right. The QBRs enable you to be more proactive. So it's becoming very clear, Jay, that clearly you're very experienced. Uh, it's your agency as the founder. Um, you'll be front and center on most of the kind of sales and negotiations uh, to an extent. Or were. Not anymore. Not anymore. I was. So not, not anymore. anymore. And that's the kind of where I'm kind of going with this is that yeah. how do you transfer your negotiating skills? Because this is a negotiation podcast. How do you transfer your negotiating skills and style to the next level down in your team? Because at 24 people, you can't be all over and don't want to be and shouldn't be all over each of the deals. So how do you delegate and transfer skills to people that may have come up through a more creative route? Yeah, and and, and it's challenging. Uh, it's I think it's the hardest role for an agency, probably sub 45 people, maybe sub 3 million turnover to, to get. Um, sales is the last thing that the founder tends to let go of. I actually, I've always practiced the employ people better than yourself. And although a founder will always have the most amount of passion for the business, they rarely are actually the best salesperson because they are probably too close to the business. And you can find extremely talented salespeople who can imbue that passion that you have if you're very clear about the fact that the passion is now launches passion, not just the founder's passion. So having a really strong sense of mission, your values, your purpose, why you're there as a business, then the sales team can take that on and negotiate properly much, much better, certainly much better than I can um, for a good outcome because they will have experience from before, but also they're just slightly less emotionally involved because that's the bit that's the bit that I struggle with is separating. You know, this is this is my baby. This is my life. 
and separating that negotiation so that emotion doesn't get involved in it. I mean, I've even had EQ training in order to be able to, to, to understand where I've got strengths and weaknesses in my personality that enable me, if I needed to negotiate, to be a better negotiator because I understand that I'm always going to try and people please. I'm always going to try and, um, and probably get more for the other person than I am for, for myself. So realizing that and actually enabling the team to do EQ training, it should be something that everybody does. Um, they will be better negotiators. <laughs> so the emotional piece, so we've only got, I don't want to abuse your time, we've only got a few minutes left, but the emotional piece, the emotional detachment, uh, it, it is a critical part of negotiating. Um, as a very old friend of mine said many, many years ago, uh, very successful sales negotiator, he said to me, the moment that you're emotionally wedded to the outcome is the moment that you're kind of doomed in the negotiation because yeah. the counterparty will spot that. They won't abuse it, but they'll know that basically the power's on their side. Yeah. And so it is an important aspect. Um, when you are negotiating less and less now than you used to, any tactics or tips about how do you take the emotion out of the conversation? I used to have quite a bit of money in the bank. I mean, we still do, but disproportionate amount of money in the bank for the size of business that we were because it enabled me to remove some of the emotion from the negotiation because I thought, do you know what? If we don't win this, we're still fine. And they say with agencies, you're either three phone calls away from your best or your worst quarter. And I don't like running the agency like that. I don't like needing more of, you know, more than 20% of our business to come from one client. So perhaps the emotion comes to play when there's fear involved, when there's heightened, you know, worries and anxieties. So being able to separate yourself from that by knowing that the agency is in a really good position, this is business and it doesn't always work out, but you're going to do your best in this scenario and if you walk away without a deal, then it was clearly not the right deal. So this is, uh, and again, lots of kind of negotiation theory, some of which is great, some of which is less useful. But this speaks to a, a critical uh, theoretical piece, which is the BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So what uh, you've described is, um, as an agency, as a seller, people think, well, I don't have a partner. either win or, or, or I lose. There, there yeah. is no best alternative. Well, actually there is, because if you find a deal with the client, what you're saying is, I think, if I paraphrase, if that's a bad deal for you and you think for them, you can walk away. Yeah. Your alternative is, I've got a strong balance sheet. We're well capitalized. You know, We've got plenty of money in the bank to keep the agency running. We'd rather not do this deal than do a bad deal. So we're going to walk away. Yeah. And that that is an enormously powerful way of taking the emotion out of what I what can be called desperation. Yeah. I'm desperate to do the deal because we've got mouths to feed. And that's a bad place, bad, bad place to be as an agency. And effectively, you you've kind of you're not over trading, but you're at that point of we're really stretched now. And if we don't get the next client in, then yeah. we're gonna have to let some people go or change the shape of the agency or whatever. And that's massively stressful. And normally you write bad deals in that environment. Yeah, 100%. And, and that's when you get the wrong clients on board, then the team members become unhappy because they're trying to hit forecasts that were never going to be possible. It, it, 
it just is the seed that that then you know plants a really negative atmosphere. It it life's too short to to do bad business deals, and um, that's kind of been part of our ethos. I've never had any negotiation training whatsoever. All I want to do is is do great work, and that has so far worked very well in our favour. Um, we're kind of growing every year at a, a, a really good rate, but it does mean that we can't go through those tenders because I'm just not willing to put that money exactly to um, to, to admin. But you say uh, you know you're not a, a, you've had no negotiation training. What you clearly have had is you're a very successful businesswoman. It's gone really well. The agency's grown. And you worked out many years ago, probably, that in order to be able to thrive and survive, particularly in difficult markets, you need to be well capitalized. You need to have a strong balance sheet, good cash reserves, well-managed business, because it gives you options. And the that's the essence of, of negotiating. The school of life. And some great books out there as well. I'm a voracious reader, so ah. I, I tend to have too many uh too many books on the go. <laughs> so if I recommend one book, I would say Getting to Yes by William Yori. It's a brilliant negotiation book. So he's a Harvard uh, professor. It's William Yori and Roger Fisher. Getting to Yes. It will take you two or three hours to read. And it's some really brilliant, brilliant foundation uh, work on negotiations. So um, yeah, so I, I, like you, I love reading as well. So in summary... If you had to give, if we were sat uh, having a, a coffee and a kind of a friend walked in who's an agency leader and you had to give just a couple of kind of headline tips when they said, what do you think about kind of, you know, what, how shall I approach the negotiation with this client I've got? You know, it's new to us. What should we do? What are your kind of headline thoughts about getting the best outcome from any negotiation? Start with the outcome. Be really clear on what that needs to be, and then you can work out how you're going to get there, whether that brief actually is going to answer getting you to the outcome and whether it needs to be challenged. Because if you start with the outcome, if you've really, if you've properly nailed that down, then even if there are bumps in the road with performance marketing, there always are. New competitors come in, pandemic, um, you can you can weather those storms and have difficult conversations along the way, knowing that you're still on the journey to that outcome. Brilliant. And I think the one I'd add on to that is exactly what you said, which is have a well-capitalized business, lots of cash on your balance sheet over time. Don't overstretch yourself because it gives yeah. you options and you can yeah. walk away from bad deals. Definitely. Jay, it's been amazing. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your agency? So we're launchonline.co.uk or launchonlineuk on the socials. We love a bit of LinkedIn and we've got a brilliant event schedule coming up this year. So it would be great to see people there. Jay, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.